Hello and welcome to The Album Years and this is uh, episode number two of the podcast which I'm co-presenting with my colleague here, Mr. Timothy Bones. Uh, hello to you, Tim. Hello. The whole concept of The Album Years, as I maybe explained last time, is that we pick one particular year or during the classic album era, which we reckon runs roughly from the mid-60s to the end of the millennium. We pick one year during that period and we talk about albums from that year that we think deserve to be talked about. And that means avoiding, in a way, many of the more obvious choices. So we're going to be talking about 1973. I can tell you now we're not going to be talking about The Dark Side of the Moon. Why are we not going to be talking about The Dark Side of the Moon? Does that upset you, Tim? It does upset me, actually. It's the album now that dare not speak its name. Well, listen, it's a masterpiece. I love it. I love the album. I've listened to it a million times. That's part of the problem. I don't feel there's anything left to be said about The Dark Side of the Moon. It's been dissected. It's been deconstructed. It's been reconstructed. There is nothing left to say about The Dark Side of the Moon. Don't say anything about it. Don't say anything about it. So anyway, the reason I'm going to sneak it in secretly. Well, the thing is, throughout this podcast, I'm sure it's going to come up. I'm sure it's going to come up, and that's the way of things. This the way. That's the way this podcast works. We're going to talk about albums that we think maybe a little bit more under the radar. Not not obscurity. Some of them will have been hits at the time, but for whatever reason, they haven't attained the same cachet and heights of an album like Dark Side of the Moon. Now, 1973, Tim, I don't know if you agree with me. This is an interesting year because it's a year when so many great albums were made and we were both making our short lists up for this year and we, it was, it was kind of, we were spoilt for choice, weren't we? Absolutely. I mean, for me, it's one of those years where almost every single genre seemed to be going through a peak. So you had brilliant soul albums, brilliant progressive rock albums, brilliant jazz and jazz rock albums. It was a fertile year. It was a fertile year. Now, but I don't know if you disagree with me or not, but I always also sense that 1973, even though what you said is absolutely true, it was like a peak year for many of these genres, there's almost a sense that it's in trans- that the, the music is in transition, that some of these genres are just on the turn slightly. I think of, particularly I think of jazz rock, and we've had this wonderful period of experimentation and scorched earth jazz and Miles Davis, you know, the weather, early weather report albums. And just coming along at this point in 1973 are the more kind of middle-of-the-road artists like Deodato who are about to take electric jazz Mm. into the elevator, aren't they? Now, I love early Deodato albums. I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily. But the reason I mention that is that we're going to talk about now uh, one of your choices for for this year, which is a clearly a progressive rock album, an album from the progressive rock genre. But I think many people would point to this album and say, this is when progressive rock began to turn, when it jumped the shark, in a sense, when it got too big for its own boots. Um, And the album in question is, of course, Jethro Tull's A Passion Play. Now, I love this record, but you've picked it, Tim. So tell us about this record and why, why it means a lot to you. Well, for me, it's still one of my favourite Jethro Tull albums. I think it's one of the most musically and lyrically detailed albums by the band. I also think there's rarely a moment where it's not interesting. For me, Thick as a Brick, although it's a great album and it has a fantastic central theme, it suffers from the fact that there's a lot of jamming. This, by comparison, seems meticulously plotted out lyrically and musically, Um, There's some interesting use of new technology. It's one of the first Jethro Tull albums to use since. Um, The flute's been abandoned and you have saxophone, so it has a very different textual quality at times. Mm. And bar the kind of self-consciously quirky um, theatrical interlude, The Hare Who Lost His Spectacles, um, I think it's a, a wonderful statement of intent, really. And it's Anderson at his best as a composer, a singer, a lyricist. You see, I'm not I'm sure. sure I complete. I'm not sure I completely agree with you because I think "Thick as a Brick" is a superior record for the simple reason that it has better tunes, more memorable melodies. I think a passion play suffers slightly from being slightly overwrought. Conceptually, it kind of dominates the melodies. And I think that's part of it, part of the issue for me, the kind of the conceit of the of the theatrical framework, I think sometimes for me, just drags it down a little bit. It, it feels a little bit too self-important sometimes. But I, but I do agree with you in a sense, there's something wonderful. And we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this in the 1980 episode as well. There's something wonderful about wonderful about an artist kind of reaching for the stars and being completely fearless 
in terms of being seen, you know, potentially seen as being pretentious or overambitious. Mm. And this is an example uh, of an album like that, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, absolutely. But I don't think he's making compromises anywhere, no. lyrically or musically. And talking of artists that are completely sort of, you know, unafraid to embrace, you know, ambition and, and you know, reaching, reaching for something huge and massively kind of, you know, overambitious in that sense. I want to talk about this album. Now, originally on my 1973 list, I had um, the Hall & Oates album, Abandoned Luncheonette, which I love that record. It's, you know, it's what, it's, it's what I think we might refer to as kind of blue-eyed soul, you know, white men making soul music but bringing in influences that perhaps only white men would bring in and this is an example of a record like that and it's Todd Rundgren um, A Wizard of True Star now Todd actually produced Hall and Oates later in the 70s and it makes perfect sense that he, that he would do that because I think he has much in common with, with their you know their interest in soul music and, and singer songwriter music but, but there's so much more in this album this album is completely off its trolley isn't it it's got psychedelia, it's got jazz, it's got music concrete, it's got progressive rock, it's got balladry, it's got it's all there, isn't it? It's got rock and roll in it. This is Todd in his home, basically setting up his home studio and doing whatever the fuck he wants. And sonically, it sounds like shit. I mean, it's got one of the worst drum sounds I've ever heard in my life on it. Uh, on one of the most beautifully sublime tracks, Zen Archer, the, the drum sound is horrendous, but it's almost so good, you you kind of overlook it. And of course, that first side is, is very much you know, taking taking its lead from side two of Abbey Road, the idea of a series of interlocking pieces, mm. fragments, some of which are barely a minute long, and weaving them into all into this incredibly uh, diverse and eclectic kind of patchwork of of, of music. So what, what do you think of this album, Tim? I love its fearlessness, and I also love the fact that it's incredibly dense and eclectic but what ties it all together is his wonderful facility for a melody yeah and um that is the thing that at this stage in his career todd a bit like paul mccartney however experimental he gets he manages to make this quite communicative quite accessible quite beautiful and zen archer as you say is perhaps the pinnacle on the album it's a tremendous piece of music and yes you know it's, it's pulling in influences from anything return to forever yes smoky robinson laura nero it's all put together in a distinctively Todd way. I think, like you say, whatever he does, it comes out sounding like 100% Todd, doesn't it? It doesn't mm. matter what he's... What he seems, he's like a magpie. He's borrowing from all these different genres, but it just sounds like him. And it is the sound of someone... You know, we come back to this time and time again when we talk about some of these albums. It's the sound of someone who doesn't give a fuck about what people think he should be doing, uh, you know, record companies and fans alike. Um, but the other thing about this record, the, the other thing about this record, one of the other great ironies, of course, is that he became known as a producer. In fact, I think he was already known pretty well. He was pretty well established already yeah. as a producer. For a producer to make such a horrendous <laughs> sounding record is not the best calling card. But I guess he was one of those guys, he was one of those producers that had ideas. So he was an ideas man rather than a kind of sonic alchemist. He was more about the idea. Yeah, we've often and discuss this for me the role of the producer is very much ideas it's helping out with arrangements it's helping out with the direction of the music brian eno is a great example of that mm. where technologically and mm. technically i'm not sure he's particularly gifted but in terms of ideas he's superlative i think you're right and i think a lot of people have have kind of got those things confused over the years i think i think you know because both of us grew up in the year of the 80s when people like trevor horn were at a peak we now sometimes think producers and and the sonics of a record are kind of synonymous and they're not are they you know mm, producers pro as you as you kind of pointed out the producer was there to give ideas and to get the the song arrangement into shape and come up with ideas well, for well, the also, arrangement yeah to get the best performance out of an artist. Yeah. For me, a producer is there listening to what's being played, how it's being played, and then telling them what could be improved upon. So it's actually having the ears for yeah. the overall project. And Todd is certainly someone that was absolutely full of ideas at this time. I mean, there's, there's arguably too many ideas on this record. So shall we, let's move on to another record. I wanted to talk about, you know, one of the other genres I feel like was, was in a period of transition, uh, during this year, 1973, was 
the singer-songwriter genre. Now, this is a great era for singer-songwriters. Of course, we've had an incredible explosion of singer-songwriters from the late 60s through the early 70s. People like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil Young, of course, and Joni Mitchell, of course, uh, arguably the greatest of all from that whole genre. Um, But ironically, Joni didn't make an album in 1973, so we're not going to talk about uh, Joni. It's one of the only years she didn't make an album, but this artist uh, did, and it's a fairly... I think it's fairly safe to say this is a pretty underrated and unknown uh, singer-songwriter, Judy Sill, and this is called Heart Food, and it's an incredible record, isn't it? Up there with the likes of Nick Drake in terms of someone who was probably... Very, very, very obscure at the time, but continues to be rediscovered uh, year after year by people who just fall in love with the quality of the work on this record. It's a great album, yeah. I mean, I've been aware of it for some time, but I came to it relatively late. I mean, quite a few musicians recommended it to me over the years, and I guess I heard it for the first time about 2002, something like that, and fell in love with it. I thought it was... um, a tremendous album and as you sort of implied it's actually Premier League singer-songwriter and compared to Nick Drake I mean Nick Drake whose work has of course meant a great deal to me and I think is very very strong it's understandable why perhaps he wasn't the biggest star of his day it doesn't quite connect with what was going on it's a little too introspective well it's very English in some ways the interesting thing with Judy Sill is it's all there this is Premier League singer-songwriter that absolutely fits in with the zeitgeist and yet didn't sell and it's got perhaps two of the finest songs I've ever heard on the album The Kiss Mm. and The Donor and The Kiss is a much more conventional love song which almost has um, a Karen Carpenter style glacial beauty Um, whereas The Donor is up there with Surf's Up in terms of its harmonic intricacy and its unusual use of almost Gregorian um, pre-classical influences. I think one of the reasons why Nick Drake, you know, never broke through at the time, of course, is he was he was crippled by incredible shyness and introspection. So maybe there's something similar going on here. Anyway, I don't know. But it is a wonderful album. And, and yes, you're right. I think to, to single out The Kiss and The Donor as two of the highlights of the album, not only highlights of the album, but highlights of the whole singer-songwriter genre is is absolutely spot on. So you mentioned uh, Karen Carpenter there, Tim, and, and that made me think about... Um, your your next choice, which we're going to talk about, because when I when I put this album on, I was very much reminded of, of Karen Carpenter. This is an album where it's one of those examples where there's an artist that, of course, is is almost ubiquitous and you think you know everything about them. And then you discover that there's this little kind of hidden corner of their discography that you knew nothing about. Uh, and in, that's certainly the case w- w- with this artist for me um, in you bringing this album to my attention. And we're talking about Diana Ross, who made this album called Touch Me in the Morning in 1973, which I knew nothing about. And uh, uh, my honest opinion is that this to me sounded like the record company had said to to Diana Ross, you know what, Diana, this this girl, Karen Carpenter's having a lot of success. We'd like you to make a record just like that. Um, and I didn't really feel like her voice was that suited to that kind of style of of almost saccharine orchestrated ballad. Um, To me, it did, dare I say, come across as a little bit like a a poor man or a poor woman's uh, Karen Carpenter. But convince me otherwise. Make a case. Well, it's one of the first albums I ever really came across because it was something that my uh, dad would play on repeat as we go on uh, tortuous seven-hour journeys to Devon from the northwest of England. So every single note on this album I know very well. I think it's a very strong album. It started off as a concept album called To The Baby, which was in honour of the fact that Diana Ross had had a child. And it was a more politically motivated uh, work. But I think Motown at the time felt that it was um, lacking in tunes. So they brought in a couple of songwriters and the title track, Touch Me In The Morning, emerged and they rejigged the album. So what you have is a more commercial vision than was originally intended. But the eight-minute medley that ends the album, uh, Brown Baby, has the kind of sonic soundscape of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, and it also has the political undertones as well. OK, I, 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 did, I, I have to confess, I didn't get to the end of the record, so <laughs> may, maybe I missed the crowning achievement on it. Uh, Diana Ross, political? I mean, I'm, you know... Diana maybe, Ross was political. If you say so. Um, yeah. If you say so. So for, for me... I don't really see it in terms of Karen Carpenter. I'm very familiar with the Carpenter's work. And although I think 
there's an understated sensuality that is similar to Karen Carpenter. I see it as being closer to uh, Dion Warwick's work with Bacharach and David in the 60s because there are such strong melodies on this album. I mean, it's very consistently well-written, disciplined, you know, with the exception of the eight-minute closer, which I rather like. I sort of see it as being a 70s response to those great orchestrated pop albums of the 60s. But I think this marked a real change in Motown because it was a killer on a commercial level. And from this point onwards, a lot of Motown's releases tended to be more honed in a self-consciously commercial way. So you were talking at the beginning of the show that 1973 marked the end of a certain way of thinking. And I know that what you were going on about was that in some ways it was... Going on about... Going what on you were about, going on about you mean was beautifully that 1973 beautifully articulating what you beautifully articulated what you eloquently yeah. articulated yeah. was that 1973 was like an overripe fruit it was that yes. fruit that just passed its best uh, yeah. a little too sweet a little too soggy okay it sounds like you have a nostalgic attachment to that record so we're going to give you a free pass on that one I, I honestly <laughs> didn't think it was that great when I listened to it but anyway uh, I'm sure there are people out there that agree with you and disagree with me. So anyway, one album we're going to talk about now, which I think everybody agrees is an uh, an undisputed masterpiece from the era. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously one of your favourite... Dark Side of the Moon? No. Well, oh. that is an undisputed masterpiece, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going Jubula to... Bells! No, we're going to talk about Roxy Music, For Your Pleasure, the oh. second Roxy Music album. Now, I have many friends who probably consider this to be the greatest achievement of all time. And I think you would put it up there too, wouldn't you? It's certainly my favourite Roxy music album. And yeah, it would be in a list of favourite all-time albums. Well, you know, listen, I love the album too. I'm, I'm kind of play, playing devil's advocate here too. Uh, you know, I, I can say what I like about it and then you can, you can be much more eloquent about it than I can. But what I like about it is it's kind of got, still got that sort of slightly um, glam element. I love glam rock. I love this sort of period of, um, you know, we're coming out of the glumness of the sort of, you know, blues rock of the late 60s and, that, and the the way mm. that kind of developed into the early 70s and we're coming out of that into something much more kind of exotic and and flamboyant and glamorous but at the same time it's got that kind of art school mentality with people like Eno and his his EMS synthesizer uh, and Bowie and his art school upbringing um, so it's really the beginnings of what I suppose a lot of people would call art rock isn't it is it is that fair to say is this beginning of art rock I think it is fair to say yeah this intensity scene, I mean I maybe? think it's well, 10CC obviously were making very good albums at this point as well. I mean, it was their debut release this year. But the 10CC album was much more about pastiche, at least their debut was. I think sheet music was, was a far greater But isn't this too? Isn't, hasn't this also got... I know that the, the first Roxy Music album has got a lot of what you would call pastiche in it. You know, the first Roxy album rock and roll. Has. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is it draws from almost 20s um, yeah, pop music yeah, yeah. and 50s rock and roll yeah. and subverts it in a 1970s glam way. It, it's got quite a murky, almost Todd Rundgren-esque production, that debut album, which perhaps gets in the way of the Not enjoyment. anymore. But I like the debut album. Not anymore. Pardon? Since I remixed it, it sounds stunning. It sounds... Am- anyway, I, I, I'm joking, yeah, I, I've got that remix. I've got that remix. You thought it was a load of shit, didn't you? You'd rather listen to the original, I thought, wouldn't you? As old Mr Grace would say... You did very well. Thank you very much. With a couple of bucks and women on either side of him. Anyway, (laughs) I've interrupted Um, you. For your pleasure, tell us why this is such... Why is this the pinnacle of the Roxy catalogue? What what makes it the pinnacle of the Roxy catalogue? Well, interestingly enough, to deviate, because we like to deviate, Eno thinks it isn't the the pinnacle of the Roxy catalogue. For him, it's actually stranded. It's the album that followed this because he felt that they took the experimentation from For Your Pleasure and managed effortlessly to turn it into something that was more commercially honed. And he's right. I mean, Stranded, which I think might have also been 1973. I don't know, but I don't don't think there's many people that would agree with... I mean, you know, maybe he's just... Mother of Pearl... Yeah, no, listen, I love that album, but The Bogus Man, In Every Dream Home, A Heartache. I I think this is the last Roxy Music, perhaps with the exception of Manifesto, which I think is a very underrated album by the band, that had a real sense of edge and discovery. The one thing about Stranded is it's a band 
completely on top of what they do. They're controlling all of the elements. And Eno, of course, is still at this stage a random element. So what you have is a far greater sense of professionalism than on the first album when they're borrowing aspects of other bands. So, for example, The Bogus Man, which I think is one of the album's highlights, you can hear aspects of Fripp's atonality in the guitar. You can hear aspects of Jackie Liebzitz's metronomic drumming. There's a can uh, reference point, I think, in Bogus Man. But actually, I think Roxy Music do can better than can because I think... Piffle. No one does can (laughs) as well as can. But I take your point... I love the Roxy Music album, but the can, no one does can as well as can. Anyway, carry on. As so, you were. So, yeah, so several of my favourite pieces here. Um, it, it has grandeur, it has playfulness, and it has a tremendous sense of thrilling experimental yes. exoticism. And, yeah. you know, in every dream home, a heartache is perhaps my favourite Roxy piece of all time. Yeah, it's amazing. I think they're kind of pulling off the Bowie trick here, aren't they? And I say the Bowie trick, meaning they're making something that is simultaneously incredibly commercial and accessible, but at the same time couldn't be more experimental. It's interesting you brought up Bowie, because I think at this stage, this is a better album overall than Bowie had done. Roxy Music are ahead mm. in the game. Mm. This is a better album than Bowie's album from this year, isn't it? Aladdin Sane. It certainly is, yeah. although Bowie's album has qualities. Aladdin yeah. Sane is something that I much prefer to Ziggy Stardust because it, it's one of those syndromes where, you know, an artist's most successful album and fan favourite quite often isn't mine. And I know that Ziggy Stardust is mm. held up as a, as a great achievement for Bowie. And of course, it, it's a very Which good it album. Is, yeah. It's a tremendous sounding album for its era. But I think it's Bowie at his least adventurous certainly vocally certainly lyrically and certainly musically whereas Aladdin Sane may not be quite as coherent an album but with the title track alone you've got something that is venturing into new directions in that case avant-garde free jazz So you, um, by the way, I just wanted to mention here for the listeners we, the first show we did the 1980s show we tried to talk about way way too many albums and uh we didn't get through anywhere near as many as we hoped so we're we're being slightly more modest this time and we're just we're just picking 10 or so albums to talk about but we're kind of we decided what one thing we would do is like maybe reference other albums as we've done there with the bowie album from that year um that kind of connect to the main album we're talking about so with that in mind i want to talk now about what was happening in the world of Kraut Rock in 1973. And you've just referred to Cannes in a rather derogatory fashion, if I may say, (laughs) uh, which I was quite appalled by, uh, to suggest that Roxy Music did Cannes better than Cannes did, which, of course, listeners will all appreciate is an absurdity. Do you you want me to insult you even more? Yeah, go on then. Low. David Bowie does Tangerine Dream better than Tangerine Dream. I'll treat that comment with the contempt it deserves and move on. So (laughs) Kraut Rock... This is this is an album we're going to talk about, which is the Can album from this year, which is Future Days. But there are there are some other wonderful Kraut Rock albums from this year, and I use the Kraut Rock term knowing that it's kind of derogatory in a sense to kind of lump all these groups together. But at the same time, Faust, who released I think their best album this year, Faust Four, had a track on that album called Kraut Rock, so even they embraced it. Anyway, so this year we had Tangerine Dreams, Phaedra, we had Faust Four. We had Klaus Schultz Cyborg, or Cyborg. We had the second Neu album. Krautrock was at as, as, as an absolute peak here. And what was extraordinary about Krautrock, Tim, and I'm sure you know this too, is that most of these bands were big in the UK in a way that they weren't big in their home country. Yeah. Um, and most of them were signed to to uh, British labels. So Neu were on United Artists. Cam were on, on uh, I think they were also on United Artists. Uh, Phaedra Tangerine Dreams album was of course the fir- their first release for the, the, the very newly set up Virgin Records another British label so it was almost like the Krautrock sound somehow resonated much better with the British than it did with you know with the German with the German people themselves so um, I wonder why that should be there's something um, that's almost become part of the musical vocabulary of pop and rock music when you listen to a band like Can, isn't there? The use of repetition, mm. it's, it's almost like the... In some ways, it comes from the same 
place as progressive rock, but at the same time, it couldn't be further away from that, could it? Because it's all about economy and it's not about showmanship and it's not about complexity. It's about repetition and simplicity. And in that sense, it has more in common with, you know, someone like Steve Reich or Philip Glass than it does with, mm. with Yes or Gentle Giant. So I, I don't, you talk, even though you've slagged them off, well, Tim, talk, talk about Can and Future Days. I suppose a lot of the Krautrock bands actually did emerge out of specifically British psychedelia. I think if you look at the core influences for Tangerine Dream, Can, Faust perhaps less so, Pink Floyd, psychedelic Pink Floyd are a major influence. I think a lot of the long-form Can grooves, even on future days, sound as if they're partly coming out of Source Full of Secrets, for example, or Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii. And um, I can hear a lot of that psychedelic era Floyd in early Tangerine Dream, early Can, um, early Klaus Schultz, etc., etc. Um, and the Beatles as well. Oddly enough, I think that, you know, the textures on something like Strawberry Feels Forever. Outside of that, perhaps you've got the more avant-garde um, Stockhausen. Certainly, um, well, Ehrman Schmidt and Helga Chukai both studied, you know, I, I believe with Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Yeah, yeah. so and, there and is, you can yeah. hear that. So, mm. so I think specifically it comes from the same place as progressive, but it's a deviation from it. So, you could argue that progressive rock comes out of psychedelia to an extent. Sure, sure. The Beatles, Pink Floyd, 67, maybe even the Moody Blues, that those albums in 67 point at where bands like King Crimson, Yes, Genesis but I don't think are that, going to come out of. But I but I don't think that's I don't think that's necessarily the whole story with the, with the bands like Can and Noi because I hear when I listen to Can and this is this is to be fair this is one of their more slick albums. The the albums before this were were a little bit more had a little bit more primitivism to them. I mean they were great records too. Tago Mago Monster Movie. I hear Sister Ray, Velvet Underground, Sister Ray. I hear that oh, yes, completely. Sorry, I, mean, I, I certainly the Thirteenth Floor Elevator. I, I hear that kind of influence of American garage. You know, the slightly more intellectual end of American garage. The seeds. You know, repetition, yeah. um, simplicity, almost stream of consciousness lyrics. And an album like Future Di- Future Days, I believe, was cut directly to stereo so there's no multi-tracking there's no apart from editing after the fact mm. there is no revisionism there's very little overdubs so this is very much a band jamming live and then and then basically editing the improvisations to create the impression of structure and create the impression oh, well, a bit like miles davis was doing at the time very much and, and, and yeah. i also hear, i was just about to say i also hear that i think that kind of cut up technique which of course is something they would have got from people like stockhausen and teo macero what doing what he was doing with miles um but it's also but it also somehow transcends all of those things doesn't it crowd rock is something that has a quality all of its own and it's very difficult to articulate what that is um well, it is, given that the bands are so different. If you think of Tangerine Dream, Faust, Can and Cluster, although there might be a common psychedelic sonic palette, they sound very, very different but I think they have, from each other. I think the one thing they have in common, all of those bands you've just mentioned, and Noi, of course, being uh, another good, mm. good example of this, they have an interest in repetition, uh, ostinatos. So you don't, yeah. you don't have that... I mean, like... A band like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, for example, would never have done much in terms of just simply repeating a simple figure. Whereas a lot of these crowd rock bands, I mean, obviously, Tangerine Dream was all about the use of sequences, which is by definition Mm. a repeating ostinato, which you then improvise over the top of. And I think there's something that's common to all of those artists that we've mentioned here. Klaus Schultz's, the Cairns, the Noise, the Clusters. It's about setting up cycles, isn't it? And then kind of processing yeah. or playing over the top of them in a way that... I well, guess... in some ways, isn't the granddaddy of this Terry Riley with yes, MC? Yes, yes, yeah, very much. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the the use of repetition, which you could argue was something that I guess was much more influential. I mean, with the one band we haven't mentioned, of course, which in arguably the most influential crowd rock band of all, which is Kraftwerk, are the mm. possibly one of the most influential bands of all time for the simple reason that electronic music exploded in the 80s and 90s and they very much those artists very much looked to kraut rock rather than progressive rock as their kind of as their kind of year zero so listen let's go on to um another of your choices the softs soft machine now 
another band we both yeah. love. Another band that's kind of hard to kind of hard to categorize, aren't they? I mean, they started off. We talked about psychedelia. Started out as a, a psychedelic band and increasingly moved towards jazz rock. And, and one of the one of the stories I've heard is that um, Soft Machine. Uh, when they were moved from, they were on CBS Records at the time in the early 70s. When they were moved from CBS's mainstream rock and pop arm to their jazz arm, they, beca- they went from becoming, they, they went from being the worst selling pop and rock artist they had to becoming <laughs> yes. the best selling jazz artist they had, which just shows you about the sales of jazz music in the early 70s. Uh, Soft Machine 7. So, yeah, yeah, so this, this is kind of the album where Carl Jenkins is, is, is taking over the band. But it's still got that wonderfully kind of wistful English quality that I think they lost on subsequent albums. This is the last album they made for, for CBS. Um, I think the later albums, I'm sure you'd agree, they moved more towards kind of anonymous jazz rock. But here, they've still got that that wonderful... What I associate, although Soft Machine were kind of removed from that scene, what I associate with the Canterbury sound, that very English mm. melancholia, the very beautiful, charming melodies without any of that kind of archness or cynicism that perhaps you get from you don't get that kind of showiness that you get from some of the american jazz rock from the same period i don't know if you agree with me on that absolutely i mean it's as i've said along with two it's my favorite soft machine album and carl jenkins dominates composition which means it has a real sense of discipline but sonically it's coming from terry riley a rainbow in curved air it's a lovely fusion of um, early american minimalism very subtle grooves and extremely pretty melodies. And it's, for me, the most complete album they ever made. I mean, they hint at this on six, they hint at this on third. Um, and after this point, as good as they are, it certainly, is, as you pointed out, becomes a more um, anonymous, flashy jazz rock proposition. And it's something that doesn't communicate to me in the same way. And I've always put this album in terms of its wistfulness and its melancholia with um, Hatfield and the North's debut album, which is um, another gorgeous piece of work, though a lot more humorous and a lot more playful by comparison. So now it's interesting. We talk, we're talking there about the fact that Soft Machine, even though they're obviously they're playing with or they're kind of playing an American style of music, aren't they? You know, jazz rock is a, is a style of music that kind of indisputably came from America, started in America. But there's something about it. It's been, it's been anglicised in a way mm. that makes it sound very distinctly different to the American jazz rock. And I want to talk about a similar kind of thing that's going on with the singer-songwriter genre in, in, in this period of time. Uh, you know, we've talked about Judy Sill's album, which is an, she's an American singer-songwriter, very much cut from, cut from the same cloth as your Joni Mitchells, uh, who obviously was a Canadian singer-songwriter. But there was at the same time a group of... English, quintessentially English and Scottish, in the case of John Martin, singer-songwriters that were doing something very, very different and very distinctly English. And I want to talk about those al- one of those albums now, which is Roy Harper and Life Mask. Now, it's a sad thing to say that most people have only heard of Roy Harper because of a Led Zeppelin song title. Mm-hmm. But you and I have both been massive fans of, of Roy Harper, particularly this period of his work, um, when he's doing something really quite different with the whole notion of acoustic-based singer-songwriter music, isn't he? Particularly on this album. He is, yeah. And in some ways, it's interesting to compare and contrast him to John Martin because they're similarly working with Echoplex. They're similarly working on the textures of their guitars and they're great players, but they come up with very different things. John Martin's music is much more sensuous, much more melodic, whereas Roy Harper's although it comes out of Dylan, there's a very stringent Englishness to his enunciation. In some ways, um, he's like a softer Peter Hamill. I kind of see there's a, there's a Peter Hamill, Roy Harper. I think there's a connection, but I, th- connection. Th- I, think, I think the thing you're picking up on there, if I might sort of interpret what you're saying here... Please do, sir. ...is that John Martin wasn't about the words, was he? John Martin was about the feeling, the sound of his voice, whereas Roy, is very, Roy Harper is very much... Like Peter Hamill, it's very wordy, isn't it? It's very much about the narrative and the words and the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, John Martin could produce an entire album with the word <laughs> love sung <laughs> 3,000 times, yeah. and it would be exquisite. And indeed he did that um, year. He produced Inside Out. I, I believe he did, yeah. 
Roy Harper, you're right. I, you can hear his influence on Ian Anderson and Roger Waters. Again, two songwriters who strongly believe in the power of the word. And um, Harper, I guess, was as much a poet as he was a singer-songwriter. And in some ways you could argue it's a difficult thing. It's a debate we, we've both had in the past. But I've always believed that lyrics are incredibly important. But that the music itself perhaps is the most important. That You can get classic, timeless, groundbreaking songs that have terrible lyrics, whereas the best lyric in the world can't sell a turd. I think that's why Roy Harper would have much more in common with someone like Bob Dylan, who, because Bob Dylan, and you know, you think of a, a song like Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, it's that stream of consciousness thing, isn't it? And here we have, on side one of Life Mask, we have a 23-minute stream of consciousness piece of music called The Lord's Prayer. Now, you could, be, you, could, you could argue that that puts him also, it gives him quite a lot more in common with the world of progressive rock. Here's a sidelong mm. piece which has various, you know, kind of sections and movements to it, but it's quite stripped back. It's mainly predominantly just acoustic guitar and voice for most of the duration, and it yeah. is very, very uh, lyric, vocal, Based. Equally, I think with Roy Harper, there's a kind of bile in his voice. And this, again, yeah, connects him yeah. to Peter Hamill, that the word and is... And Roger important. Waters. And Roger Waters, yeah. So Hamill, Waters, Harper are precursors to punk as much as they are uh, examples of the most experimental elements of the progressive music scene. So I think that if you were listening to it purely sonically, it would still give you a feeling, this music. You know, it's, it's quite ambitious, the way in which it cuts up the spoken word and hmm. the way in which it processes the guitar. There's also the Hamill album from this year. Now, we, we joked in the first episode that Peter Hamill was an artist that's probably going to co- crop up in every single episode because there's almost, there's barely a year goes by when there isn't an interesting Peter Hamill record. And the, and the record he's made from this year, Chameleon, Chameleon in the Shadow of the Night, is also one of my favourites. And also, hmm. you know, an idea of taking what can be done with a simple acoustic guitar voice singer songwriter context processing in the studio um, pushing the idea of structure and compositional structure to its absolute limits so there's something it does seem to be something in the air in 1973 in terms of these these British singer songwriters it's also the year that Kevin Coyne made Marjorie Razorblade and again another massively ambitious uh, you know acoustic based mm. singer songwriter double album in this case so there's something in the air isn't there in, in, in this time in the British singer songwriters yeah and, and Coyne's instincts again you can hear the influence of Dylan on what he does but it's thoroughly mm. anglicized it's made into Completely. something more experimental more eccentric and angry again it's angry again and isn't angry it? yeah kevin yeah. coin is another one of those artists that probably made as much sense on stage in 1973 1979 and 1983 um as did of course you know hamill and harper um although it's interesting with and harper that hamill managed to navigate the new wave effectively in the same way that Bowie did, Fripp did, Gabriel did. And Harper, to a certain extent, always had that whiff of, um, you know, the 1970s about him, the early 1970s. Mm. The, the Harper album was the one that was seen alongside Led Zeppelin three, Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, for obvious now, is, reasons in is, that case. Is that as, I think that part of that is because he was seen as a massive stoner. <laughs> he's just got that kind I of think vibe right. about yeah. him that he's basically a hippie. He's, he's permanently stoned and you could kind of hear that in the music. Whereas Hamill sounded like he was always complete, you know, it was almost like the opposite. He was completely hyper. He wasn't chilled out at yeah. all. Harper was just like so chilled out. He was like falling off his stool. Whereas Hamill was completely manic, you know. Um, so there is that that kind of separates them in a sense. Anyway, I think we should move on, Tim. I want to talk about another of your choices. Now, this is an artist that I, I'm going to come clean here and say, I don't like this artist. I have tried. I, he's just one of those artists, a bit like Nick Cave. I have massive admiration for Nick Cave. I just don't like any of his records. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And I appreciate the genius of it. And this is Lou Reed. Um, I love the early Velvets albums. I just can't really find a way into his solo catalogue. And I know that this album we're talking about from 1973, Berlin, is rated, uh, by again, by many people I re- whose opinion I respect, yours, Carl Glover's opinion, um, as being his absolute masterpiece. And I have it. Um, 
I just don't like it very much. So I'm going to ask you to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to ask you to tell everyone why this is a, a, a record well worth it, which which absolutely is, and I concede that it is a a great record and it is absolutely worth listening to and worth owning. But I'm not the right person to speak about it. So you speak about it. Please. It's a difficult album really to sell, isn't it? Because I think that you either get the voice and the mood or you don't. I mean, this is certainly one of his most ambitious albums. And I think one of the things that's kind of missed out with Lou Reed is that he always saw his songs as being short stories as much as songs. And Berlin is the novel, if you like. So it's a fairly relentlessly bleak depiction of a relationship and a life in chaos and torn to tatters by, um, you know, drug consumption as much as anything else. What I think lifts this above a lot of Lou Reed albums is the production. It's produced by Bob Ezrin, who obviously later on in the decade goes on to produce Pink Floyd's The Wall, famously. And at this stage, he was famous for doing Alice Cooper's albums. And Alice Cooper's albums of this period, actually, it's an album we didn't put on our list, but Billion Dollar Babies was around this time, might have been his 1973 album. Again, superb orchestration. So I think Bob Ezrin's involvement in this as much as anything is, is what I like. I mean, as a whole, this just works very nicely. I mean, obviously, it's, it's difficult to use the word nice about an album that has the song. It's quite nasty. I was going to say, it's, it's quite nasty. <laughs> it's, got a sort of, it's got a sort of undercurrent of nastiness about it, hasn't it? Well, one of the great um, rumours about this album, which um, has been denied latterly, was that I think it was... Bob Ezrin, in order to get a particular emotional peak in the album, he wanted um, the sound of children crying as the children are being taken away from the mother that the story depicts. And this is probably because of her, you know, drug abuse and so on. And allegedly, Bob Ezrin called over to his own children, kids, your mum's dead. It's a great story, but if it, if it is true, that's, that's just going too far, isn't it? Listen, um... So, OK, I think, I think you've made a good case for it there. So it's an album that I kind of admire when I hear it. I just don't like it very much. I think for me, the early Velvet Underground albums have got charm. For me, at this point in Lou Reed's catalogue, most of his solo work, to be honest, I find is a little charmless uh, for well, me. Well, yeah, yeah, and I prefer, I've got to say, that in terms of Velvet Underground solo albums, I love the, the Velvet Underground debut album, but actually in terms of the solo albums, because it was like Roxy Music, all of them produced quite a number of solo albums and they were all interesting. And the John Cale albums around this time, you know, Helen of Troy, um, Fear, tremendous pieces of work. And Nico, I mean, her albums, yeah. which were produced by Cale in some cases, fearless and totally consistent. And although she may have been the least musical in one of the least musical bands, um, brilliant pieces of work when we get to 1969 we'll definitely be talking about the marble index for for sure right. which is an album that you introduced me to many years ago and it's it's it definitely in my top 50 albums of all time anyway let's i think we've got one more album i want to talk about tim before before we wrap up and then then we can give a brief shout out to anything that we haven't talked about you know from this year because there were so many uh, great records this year but one record i do want to talk about because it is um, I think it's an amazing record and it's again by a band that, that many people wouldn't really consider as having reached any kind of artistic peak until much later in the 70s but to me this is uh, right up there with all of their best work and it's On the Third Day by the Electric Light Orchestra now mm -hmm. This is, as I say, the third band's third album, thus the title. And it's not a record I, I see a lot of people talk about. There's no real big, big, you know, mainstream hit singles on this album. Although some people might know Marmar Mar Bell and some albums, some versions of the album have Showdown added as a bonus track, which was kind of a non-album single at the time. This album for me is Jeff doing his um, I Am The Warus rock and roll band with cellos um it's it's kind of getting that formula absolutely honed to perfection mm. because obviously later on he's moving increasingly towards i guess moving away more from the lennon influence to more the mccartney influence more towards pop and of course was a genius when he when it came to writing uh timeless pop songs but on this album he's not trying to write timeless pop songs he's still trying to create something far more progressive in the true sense of the word far more experimental far more of a fusion of pop 
and classical instrumentation. The whole of the first side is, again, we talked about the Todd album having a continuous suite. The whole of the first side of the album is a continuous suite, which is bookended with two versions of the same uh, theme called Ocean, Ocean Breakup. So it has this very conceptual kind of bent and scope to it. And I just love those heavy cellos used in place of, you know, what would traditionally be sort of distorted electric guitars. It's that kind mm. of heavy cello. They're nothing heavier than uh, multi-tracked heavy cellos. So I don't know if you're familiar with this album, Tim, but uh, it's one of my absolute all-time favourites. Might even be my favourite ELO album on a good day. It was, it was such a fertile period for pop music. I mean, I'm thinking here of 10cc, Sparks, who are about to release Kimono, My House and ELO that tremendously inventive pop music that seemed to be coming out the second side of Abbey Road in some ways as well that's mm. that gigantic medley that ushers in the 70s to a certain extent and um, of course lest we forget there were some great Beatles related albums this year Paul McCartney released two albums in mm-hmm. 73 that had the same kind of um, experimental fusion of post-psychedelia Beatles and the beginnings of progressive but with a pop mentality and he also had the single Live and Let Die. So you had, mm. you know, Red Rose Speedway, Band mm-hmm. on the Run, which are arguably two of the greatest Wings mm. albums. Um, and I think On the Third Day fits very nicely into that. I see On the Third Day as being the first album where they become ELO. I love mm-hmm. the first album. The first album is actually one of my favourite Electric mm-hmm. Life Orchestra albums. Me too. Yeah. And partly because it's incredibly unpredictable. It's quite insane in parts. And there's obviously the Roy Wood influence on this. But on On the Third Day, it's like they're absolutely in control of their materials. It's a little like I was saying about Stranded, that Stranded is a perfect Roxy Music album in that they're in control of what Roxy Music is. And on On the Third Day, this is a very confident Lynn making a great album. But he's it, still, yeah, sorry, I just try. St- I think the, the difference between what came before and what, and what came after, and this album is kind of like the watershed moment, is there's still that darkness that the early albums have. Um, the, the kind of almost oppressive use of cellos, very much so. You get to the yeah. next album, the next year, El Dorado, you're starting to become much more lighter, much more pop. But this album's still very dense and very, it's got a very dark, oppressive atmosphere to it. The voice, he's, I think partly because I don't think he was very confident yeah. with his voice at the moment, at that time, he was processing it a lot, using that kind of megaphone effect on the voice, distorting his voice. It makes it very claustrophobic in a way, uh, the sound mm-hmm. of this record, the production on this record. So for me, this is, this. I think we're going to talk about this with a lot of artists. They reach a certain point where they're in transition. Maybe it's true of the soft machine we talked about. They're in transition, but there's a point where they're just between two worlds where they're just getting the best of what came before and the best of what's to come and things are perfectly in balance and for me that's what we have on this album i I think it's interesting i mean that transitional period can be um often the most exciting i mean you know talk talk color of spring is one of those albums where it's transitional yeah yeah you know the discipline of the pop song era talk talk but you then have the beginnings of where the band are about to go and it's a tremendous collision of accessibility and ideas which makes it one of my talk talk favorites as well so um that's kind of i think that's all the albums that we had on the on the list of must 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 talk about but we should just maybe give a shout out for some of the other albums that we did have on our list that we we simply haven't had time to listen to but you know as we said we may we may get to the point where if the show carries on we may come back to this year again but we haven't talked about some great albums t-rex tanks uh, probably my favorite t-rex album uh vangelis earth um the last of the really the, the evangelis rock albums where he's still using a lot of guitars and drums and very much a companion to the previous year's Aphrodite's Child album 666. Uh, Barry White's Stone Gone. Mm. Bowie's Aladdin Sane, we did talk a little bit about. Labby Sifri's For the Children, another album I knew nothing about that you, you turned me on to, which uh, again is a very interesting kind of a, a, t- a different take again on the singer songwriter album. Uh, Lonnie Liston Smith's Astral Traveling, kind of spiritual jazz record. Yeah. 
Um, Sandy Denny's like an old-fashioned waltz. Uh, Led Zeppelin's House of the Holy, which is kind of borderline classic rock canon. Uh, so I'm not sure we would talk about that anyway. But it's a great album and, and, and mm. perhaps one of the more underrated corners of their discography. Uh, Klaus Schultz's Cyborg, we briefly touched on. Henry Cow's Legend album, or Legend, depending on how you want to say it. Yeah. Uh, you know, another album, I guess, which, which kind of loosely falls into that sort of soft machine, Hatfield and North, Canterbury-related sound. Not my favourite Henry Cow album, but it, it was a great album. And again, one of the first albums on the, on the very newly launched Virgin records at the time so those are albums we didn't get a, time, a chance to talk about but they're albums that myself and tim all uh all of those albums we also rate very highly so as you can see we we were really struggling to get this down to uh the ones that we talked about okay thank you very much again for listening and uh we'll be back next episode i think we're actually going to move into the 90s tim how about that Good god well, we will we will find out next next time as we talk about 1992. So the last thing that remains for us to do is to pick two albums from 1973. First of all, the one that we think is our personal favourite and the one that we feel perhaps is the most influential in terms of signposting uh, the future, Tim. So what would be your uh, your choice for your favourite 1973 album? I suppose it has to be Dark Side of the Moon. Okay, and your most influential record? In terms of influential, I'd say that For Your Pleasure, because yeah. mm-hmm. I think this is what comes to define a lot of post-punk music and a lot of early 80s experimental electropop. Cool. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to agree with you in terms of For Your Pleasure being possibly the most influential. It's certainly the album that seems to come up most when I talk about, you know, uh, albums from this this year with with other people. It's an album that comes up time and time again as having been a big influence. So in terms of my my personal favourite album from this year, it's tough. There there are there are so many on this list. Um, I'm looking at Tangerine Dream, Phaedra. I'm looking at T Rex Tanks. I'm looking at ELO on the third day. I'm looking at Peter Hamill's Chameleon in the Shadow of the Night. Uh, all of which I would be very happy to be stranded on a on a desert island with. So uh, I can't really uh, I can't really pick between between those to be honest to be fair but anyway and dark side of the moon obviously i literally do not need to hear that album ever again when i was a kid my dad listened to it over and over and over again and actually i've got a lot to blame my dad for or thank my dad for in terms of my musical dna by playing that album relentlessly when i was six or seven years old and now i'd never need to hear it ever ever again as long as i live but it is an album i will hold up as a perfect perfect record but there's nothing so, else so to you say. had dark side of the moon i had touch me in the morning I yeah think you might have got the better deal well I, I probably did based on what i've heard of touch me in the morning i definitely did get the better deal yeah anyway on that note we'll say goodbye thank you very much for listening thank you tim bye bye <laughs>